Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. And welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding through you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. That's what happens when the boss comes in right before you go on the air. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies, folks. I blew that uh, intro there. Uh, he came in and talked to me of something, about something very important. As, as he always does, so I apologize for that. Uh, it ain't as hot today as it has been. It's actually quite nice out there. Yesterday it hurt. It was so hot. It was like painful. <laughs> but out there in Montana, you know where that is, don't you, up there? Oh, yeah. Was it's it a big sky country. Big old state with not a lot of people in it. Young environmental activist, they have prevailed in their first of its kind climate change trial. I'm not kidding you. There's something like in the Montana Constitution that says they have a right to clean and healthful environment. And you know, the states, imagine this, the horror, they're allowing fossil fuel development. <gasps> Oh, the humanity. (laughs) True story. So it turns out that the plaintiffs in this suit are children ranging in age from, I kid you not, 2 to 18. (laughs) 2. A 2-year-old is on a lawsuit. Every additional ton of greenhouse gas emissions exacerbates plaintiff's injuries and risks locking in irreversible climate injuries. The suit contends. The judge rejected the state's argument that Montana's emissions are insignificant. He said they're a substantial factor in climate change. Montana is a major producer of coal burned for electricity and has large oil and gas reserves. Well, hell, let's drill them and get them out of the ground. I'm tired of paying near $4 a gallon. This is so ridiculous. You know what's worrisome about this? You think this will stop in this state with this suit? Because I've learned. First, I think it's crazy that the Constitution has this provision enshrined 
in it about having a right to a healthy environment. I mean, does that belong in the Constitution? Seems a little weird to me. Well, it turns out other states have such provisions. And you know that the climate nuts are identifying them as the next target. I need to look at ours. Do we have anything like that? I don't know. I haven't the foggiest. But it's... um, I'm just... I'm still flabbergasted by the assertion that Montana is contributing to climate change when they have less than eight hundredth of a percent of the population of China, who is the world's worst polluter. We just ignore it, don't we? Speaking of China, the markets are down rather sharply today. The Dow down 250. It's been down as much as over 300. NASDAQ down as well, 89. It's been down 150. It's recovered a bit. But you know why? Because the centrally planned economy of China is faltering. I know that's shocking. You see, that's what happens when a small group of individuals manage a gigantic economy. Sadly, we have people in this country, like Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders and Pramila Jayapal, Hakeem Jeffries, Ro Khanna. I can go down the list. They're all Democrats, of course. Because the D stands for dumb. <laughs> Who possess the hubris to believe they, not markets, can manage what is now a $25 trillion economy. You buyers and sellers, you can't work it out. We got to intervene. We got to tell you what to make, how much of it to make, what to charge for it, who you can hire, what you're going to pay them. That is what socialism is. In the case of China, it's more of a communistic version of economic of an economic system where Private property, somewhat limited, and for the most part, anything you're allowed to produce as a private citizen, they make sure you know, you know, we really own that. (laughs) It's not yours. Oh, my gosh. And I'm upset about that, and I'll tell you why. Because we have people here, seems like, that want us to be more like China. Are they crazy? And you know you hear a yeah. lot you hear a lot yeah they are you hear a lot of folks on our side that express concerns and rightfully so about the devaluation of the dollar. And so many times Rhino I've said I have concerns about that as well. But you know what the saving grace is? Everybody else is worse. What keep by the way the ruble tanking. Idiots in Russia they see fit to go spend all their damn money fighting Ukraine. And we're helping Ukraine. And we don't know what's happening to that money. No accountability. And then in China, they're finally, I guess they're finally manifesting the failures of centrally planned economies. They're experiencing, folks, deflation right now in China. Central bank reducing rates, ours increasing rates. Because we're experiencing inflation. Retail sales out today. 
came in better than expected in this country. Up 0.7% month over month. I'm shocked at it. But a lot of it was driven, it is said, by the Amazon Prime Day, which occurred last month. So you get big discounts, you know the whole deal, and they promote the heck out of it. They're pretty good at that, getting you to click on the little Amazon But it's not like Amazon Prime is like the Christmas shopping season. It doesn't have that much of an impact on the economy. It it doesn't, but in terms of retail sales, it it actually did. It was a tr- the the increase over expectations was attributed largely to that. The other one that's up today, whose sales came in a little better than expected, Home Depot. They're a Dow component as well. And here's what they are reporting. Home Depot, by the way, very well managed company, as is Lowe's. The only caveat I'd make to that is that a couple of years ago, Home Depot really went all in on the CRT, DEI stuff. I mean, it was disgusting. I've got documents that were leaked from internal use training. Ridiculous. All this privilege crap and pronoun junk and words you shouldn't use, like nuclear family and father. Home Depot. I'm not kidding. But they're, other than that, a very well-managed company. So what they report this morning in their earnings, as part of their guidance, is that people, they're not leaving their houses, these ones that just signed up for these 2 and 3% mortgages. You remember that period of time when we came off of COVID and everything was shut down? So they're investing in projects to remodel, just various home improvement projects. But what they reported is people aren't doing the big home improvement projects because, generally speaking, you got to go borrow money for that, and that's expensive. But they're investing in small. Makes sense, home improvement projects. And uh, that's driving their sales. Now, their guidance was less than rosy. It wasn't bad, terrible, but it wasn't just, yeah, we're fixing to just bust all the numbers here in the coming quarters. Meantime, we have this shortage of housing. But I noticed that, and you know what that's doing? That's driving the cost of rent through the roof because people, they can't afford to buy a house. We got north of 7% mortgage rates, and a lot of folks who... We're in the market and just waiting to accumulate maybe enough money for a down payment or getting to a point where their income could support a mortgage. Now they're saying it's out of range now. Can't do it. They're having to rent, trying to stick with those rental agreements in place, worried about getting hit with big price increases, rental increases here soon. But Warren Buffett made an interesting series of investments. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more we got to get to. Ellen Daniels, literary director for the Mississippi Book Festival at 1105. Robert Dozier, executive director of the Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association at 1205. Middays from the Element Well Studio. We'll be right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
We are back in the Element Wealth Studio. Gerard and Rhino. Also, before I talk about the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, that we teased before we went to break, we should recognize that old Perez, our good buddy, producer. I don't know you'd like you calling him old, but. Well, I mean, old as in <laughs> he's legendary. There you go. He's iconic. The first time I filled in <laughs> with Perez as producer, I filled in for Gallo. <laughs> and I just announced, as I always do, as a fill-in. You know, I'm I'm here today filling in. And I said, for the iconic Paul Gallo. And Perez said, wait, 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 wait. He's not iconic. He's not dead yet. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, he's moving on. He's retiring. And we wish him all the best in his much-deserved retirement. He's a big tennis player, loves to play tennis. And a lot of folks, of course, in uh, in this neck of the woods know him. His voice, I mean, almost symbolic, honestly, with radio. In central Mississippi, for sure, and across the state, here at Supertop. But prior to that... Most people remember, I certainly do, this is WZZQ days, classic rock. I remember when my father bought a, uh, my father was a traveling salesman, and he put 100,000 miles on a car every year, and he typically had the big old Cadillacs when he could afford it. Before then, it was an Oldsmobile, and he finally got to where he could afford a Cadillac, because he had to put his samples in the trunk. This is before he had vans and stuff like that. And he could get his samples in those gigantic trunks. Long before the SUV. Correct. Didn't That wasn't around then. And so he bought a 1971, i never forget it, Cadillac, uh, Sedan DeVille, I think's what it was called. And it was about, what, 80, 100 feet long, something like that. It was a big old car. But it had something brand new in it, FM radio. And I don't remember exactly when ZZQ was launched, but it seems to me that it was like the first FM on the air. But having that FM stereo music was cool. And back in those days, Rhino, the radio had a little little light indicator, little dot-sized light indicator that would tell you, stereo. <laughs> it had a little stereo oh, yeah. label. Remember that? And you tune that in. But I'm digressing a little bit and reminiscing, but our good friend Perez is uh, much celebrated here at Super Talk. We will miss him, and we wish him all the well, all the best, I should say, in his retirement. I think we're going to honor him a bit as our team later on this week. We look forward to that. Really something, man. He and Paul together, it's really good. Very good. And had a bunch of people tuned in every day just to hear them back and forth. The uh, the Oracle of Omaha is investing heavily. That would be Warren Buffett. And a lot of people follow his lead, as you know. Investing heavily. And what I mean heavily, the last month, $800 million. <laughs> $800 million bucks in housing, public companies who build houses, saying, the only way we're going to get out of this shortage problem is to build more. So there's a constraint of housing, and even with the 
7% mortgage rates, they're still outsized demand, excess demand, over supply. Now, I suspect a lot of folks are sort of moving down the value chain to fit a mortgage into what they can afford. Now, you may not want to share this with the audience, but I found your your example fascinating about oh, yeah. your apartment. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my old place, I had a pretty reasonable rent. I'll, I'll just say it was less than 600 bucks a month. And it was a bachelor pad. Hadn't been remodeled since probably before I was born. Had uh, had a single landlord that then passed it down to his sons who took over for him. Never really had any problems, but it was one of those kind of places where I tried to fix everything myself because I didn't want to give them an excuse to raise my rent. <laughs> well, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know I had to move recently because that apartment wasn't quite up to code, and they had to kind of kick me out so they could bring it back up to code and, and remodel it. Well, I was trying to remember exactly the number for the address because it's been a year and a half or so. So I just Googled it real quick, knowing it would still be in my history, and I saw it listed. I was like, wow, okay, let's see what it looks like now. And I click on it, and it's going for $3,500 a month now. That's insane. And I think that's just a function of what we were talking about. There's just more demand for rental property than, than there is uh, historically, and that's driven by the constraint of houses. Just don't have enough houses. And, you know, you got to have some turnover, right? Folks buy a house, live in it a while. They move up the income ladder, maybe start a family, need more space. They move out, and then the next starter group moves in. Well, they ain't moving because they're sitting on a 2% mortgage, and to move, they got to take out a 7% mortgage. So that's a big old problem, and this president, who, by the way, I just saw on the television in the studio, he said it to Milwaukee today to tout Bidenomics. And why? Because next week is the Republican debate, the first Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee. Of course, Donald Trump. This was crazy. This was like had me riveted to the television last night for about three hours, I mean, past midnight, watching all the reports. I don't remember ever seeing the a press conference of an indictment in prime time. I'm telling you, it was contrived. It was scheduled. It was intentional to call attention to it. We'll get to that in a minute. Price Wallace, Representative Price Wallace on the ceasefire text line, that's 601-879-4395, says, Did you score one of those delicious Smith County watermelons? So that in reference to last evening when I was uh, privileged, honored to address the Smith County Republicans. Really appreciate that opportunity afforded by our regular listener, Larry from Mize on the ceasefire text line. And uh, Mize, of course, in Smith County. He had me come in and speak to the Smith County Republicans. Great group of people. Concerned salt-of-the-earth Mississippians, patriotic Americans. And I really appreciate that opportunity. So, Price, I tell you, I, I was hoping so. And one of the first things, Rhino, I, I asked about 
knowing that the county is largely an agricultural one, is how's the drought, not so much the heat, but how's the drought affecting? And there, uh, I believe, a fair number, correct me if I'm wrong here, Price, a fair number of cattle farms. I know I passed a few en route yesterday through the countryside there. Beautiful landscape, by the way. Mississippi's so beautiful. But, you know, kind of gentle rolling hills and some big open pastures, and especially those that are home to the cattle and the cattle farms. But they said they were already putting hay out, which is a little premature because the grass is dying in the fields, or certainly not a healthy stand of it, with the drought is what a couple of the folks in attendance. I really wanted a watermelon price, but they told me, I guess it's good news, bad news. The good news is they sold the watermelon crop, and that's off and gone. And so they monetized, uh, the farmers did, their investment for this season. Bad news is I didn't get a watermelon. (laughs) I'd have put it on my head, honestly, to cool off, uh, given the heat. But I really appreciate that opportunity to go over and speak uh, to the Smith County Republicans. Good folks over there. Uh, Talking about China, by the way, I just saw on the screen here, they're no longer going to provide unemployment statistics for the age group marked by the ages of 16 to 24, which, by the way, sits at 22%, which is ridiculously high. They they ain't got no place to work because their economy is faltering because it is centrally planned by people who think they can do that, that they can manage an economy. Like I said, we have people in Washington. Can you imagine Pramila Jayapal running a $25 trillion economy? Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, Liz Warren, the whole lot of them. They're clueless. Clueless. No idea what it's like to sign the front of a check, to take risk. No idea. Couldn't manage a lemonade stand, and that's being disrespectful to the youngsters who manage lemonade stands. Maybe they can get a job pouring it up or something. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Thank you so much for joining us. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for... Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Studio Sunday, bloody Sunday uh, by U2. I believe that is in reference to the 1972 massacre. I think that's what that's about. I think that was called Bloody Sunday, 1972. British soldiers shot 26 unarmed civilians during a protest. 
I think that is actually a protest song from the Irish group U2. From the Troubles. Yeah, exactly. Does it occur to the Democrats, says Louie from the 662, that we wouldn't have droves of people trying to come into this country if it were better in those other countries? We were talking this morning about China's faltering economy. It is a centrally planned economic system, a handful of the CCP (laughs) um, regime plan every aspect of the Chinese economy. No, I don't think it does, Louie. I really don't. It's not politically expedient for, for them to discuss that, because it, it honestly, it, they, they believe it diminishes their value. They want to be needed. Honestly, sometimes it feels like, let's go screw everything up, so they'll come pleading to us on their knees. We need you to take over. Honestly, I do believe there is some truth to that. Paul's Appliance Repair says we switched from Amazon Prime to Walmart Plus. We're talking about Amazon Prime because we got retail sales out this morning, and they were a little better than expected, and analysts believe that is attributed to strong sales for Amazon on Amazon Prime Day last month. Says Paul says the... $0.10-a-gallon discount for gas pays for the program for me. Plus, you get a subscription to Paramount Plus for free. I think Prime, I mean, I'm a Prime member, and I get the notifications all the time about all the various benefits that I'm not using, and I think some of those are the streaming services, which I don't use. But I don't know that there's a way to get discount on fuel from Amazon, right? No. They're probably thinking about it, though. Also, they did release, did Amazon, their quarterly earnings last month. You've uh, tuned in before. You've heard me talk about the fact that Amazon really has not made any money. In fact, their their accumulated performance in their e-commerce business is hugely upside down. Tens of billions they've lost. And this past quarter, first time since... 2020, the COVID year, the only year, by the way, they produced a profit in the e-commerce segment of their business. This past quarter, they finally made a little money. They made $3 billion, $3 billion on the e-commerce part of their business. Contrast that to last year, same year, or same quarter, pardon me, lost $600 million. Significant, a $3.8 billion improvement year over year. No particular expectation. Historically, Amazon rakes in all their profit from their cloud services business unit, Amazon Web Services. Still, however, not a very profitable company relative to revenue as a percentage of revenue. The company on track this year to produce almost $500 billion of gross revenue, top-line revenue, only about $25 billion in net income, which is double last year. Double. And the vast majority of that comes from about 65-70% from Amazon Web Services, cloud services business unit. Just a little trivia about Amazon there. 
lot of, and of course, Liz Warren loves to attack Jeff Bezos. Robert Reich, same deal. They got to pay their fair share. Billionaires like that shouldn't pay no taxes. Blah 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 blah. It's because they lost tons of money for years, and they've invested mightily in capital equipment, which is a non-cash expense that is written off immediately under tax law. However, that's being phased out, and the Demo- that's part of the Trump tax cuts. And also, it was part of, believe it or not, Obama's stimulus plan included a similar provision that endured for three or four years. Just immediate expensing. You buy a piece of equipment rather than depreciating it over an extended period of time in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles, acronym known as GAP for that, GAP accounting. You write it all off in the year of purchase. But then you don't have that expense to reduce your income tax liability, your, your revenue, in future years. You just take it all up front. They, they don't get that. They always think somehow you're evading taxes by doing it. No, you're not. You're just you're postponing it is what you're doing. You're deferring the taxes. You're not getting out of any taxes. But Amazon has capitalized on that provision because they've spent so much dang money building distribution facilities and massive data centers, which cost a ton of money. And they write that off, as do other companies. And the Democrats hate that provision, just hate it. Oh, uh, yeah, we got you, Paul. I see it. You see that, Rhino? Got you. I bet you're making Perez feel wonderful reminiscing about him predating FM radios and cars. I don't remember, actually, when Perez started his career there. I just was thinking about how things have changed and how we have satellite radio and everything's in stereo and crystal clear and digital and just the improvements. Wow, I wonder where that came from. Oh, that's right, capitalism. Innovation, risk, reward. Guess who invented that? The the whole concept of streaming radio over the Internet. Mark Cuban. Know who he is? Owns the Dallas Mavericks. That's back in the 90s. I think he made himself a cool $3 billion. Broadcast.com, when he sold it to, uh, was it Yahoo, I believe, was the buyer of Broadcast.com? Yeah, that's pretty innovative. Hey, this Internet thing, he had this idea. Maybe we could actually transmit radio signals through the Internet, and you could listen to radio, even your favorite radio stations when you, that are back home when you're on the road. Look at our app, for example. Our website is common now, and there are third parties that that uh, combine all those stations into uh, into one app that you can select. It's incredible. Well, it was Cuban that came up with the idea. He got rewarded for it. Think that's been valuable to society? Yeah, I think so. A concept that's over the head of Democrats. Actually, I don't know if he came up with the idea, but he definitely made it user-friendly. I think that's true. He may not have been the technical... Because I want to say, before he came around, you could still stream radio broadcasts over the Internet with Winamp and that kind of stuff, but you had to have a certain plug-in 
made by a guy that lived halfway right. around the world, and you had to have the IP address for the radio station and their permit. Like, it was just insane. Whereas he just had it all in one place. He commercialized it. Which is kind of the, the dream, the goal of the big entrepreneurs now, like the Bezos and the Musks and stuff, is to have everything you possibly want in one place. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a great point you bring up because anytime I get into a discussion, especially in, in my speaking engagements, about um, wealth inequality, and the left always says it's because this country's so oppressive, people can't move up the economic ladder, and they'll just cite a series of reasons for that, which are complete horse hockey. But what I believe is that People that have really uh, overperformed, just exceptional performance, such as Cuban. What he did was he took a series of tools, an array of tools, created by others, available. He then had the idea, you know what, if we could figure out a way to put all those tools together, leverage all those capabilities into something that, like you said, that has a simple, easy Easy uh, on the on the mind user interface. That's what he did. He just leveraged tools created. So the most successful people in society, that's what they do. They use these tools. The rest of us mortals, we ain't like Cuban. We can't figure that stuff out. So guess what he did? And in doing so, he produced enormous value and he got financially rewarded for it. That's the way it's supposed to work. The tools are out there. Not all of us have the ability or even the desire to leverage those tools. That's all Bezos did at the end of the day to build his empire. And you can just go down the list of everybody else. The left doesn't think that. Oh, the system's rigged. That's what they did. No, they didn't. We are stepping aside for a break in the Element Well studio. Ellen Daniels, literary director for the Mississippi Book Festival at 11.05 today. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studio. Wow. You see these photos Randy sent? Where's that going on there? It's like a bunch of folks that are essentially ransacking a police vehicle. I don't know where that is. He says stupid is incurable. Isn't Mark Cuban a Democrat? He styles himself as independent. In fact, he's been very vocal about his belief that our two-party system is uh, not in the best interest of the country. He thinks we need more who don't necessarily affiliate with a party. He, you know, he toyed with the idea of running for president. He was asked several times about it, and he didn't just come out and say no or yes. 
many times. Uh, and I think he decided to back off, said I can do more just in my current role, owning the Mavericks and investing. He's trying to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry, as a matter of fact. Right? You've seen some reports about that. He's, oh, yeah. Sees opportunity there. And I mean, look, the guy is an entrepreneur. He's brilliant. I think I shared before I had the privilege of attending a one week class. And um, in Atlanta, we were going to the class to get authorized by IBM to sell personal computers. That's when I started my company. He started his, called Micro Solutions, by the way, in Dallas. And we had some overlap. He offered uh, a product called Lotus Notes. Don't want to get into the details of that, but kind of predates what we're all accustomed to in the uh, very common app interface you're used to on smartphones. This was for full-size PCs. You didn't have smartphones back then, but it looked very similar. The Lotus Notes interface, it was used in corporate America for various database functions. It integrated database with email, something we're all accustomed to today, and and communications. And a product that uh, we started selling as well called Carbon Copy. Remember that? Ever heard of that? And it was a tool that allowed you to remotely access and take over control a PC. So you you would um, and then like if you wanted to dial in, for example, at night, this is pre-internet to the corporate network where the systems are. You'd have an old modem, da, 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 dial a number. You have some software, and you would dial to a PC at the corporate headquarters that was you left up. Ah, the nostalgia of the sound of robots screaming. <laughs> and you would take over that local PC. And the reason was you couldn't get enough bandwidth to do this fancy sort of stuff we do today with all the graphics and things, and you'd be sitting there waiting for your screen to paint, just pain. <laughs> you know? And so Carbon Copy just sent, rather than all the data down across the wire, essentially, to the PC, you just sent the screen and the local PC and the corporate network would handle all the processing. It was a tool called Carbon Copy. And Gosh, what would we do with bandwidth like that back then? <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, I remember going over to a friend's house about the same time the movie The Matrix came out. And in order to watch the online-only videos they were using to hype it up, it wasn't even really a trailer. It was kind of... Uh, a hodgepodge between an, an ARG, which is short for alternate reality game, and a trailer on the website. He started it up one day after school, left it loading overnight. We went <laughs> to school the next day, came back over to his house after school the following day, and it was still finishing loading. Yeah, we're spoiled. For a tiny little video that was maybe a third the size of your iPhone screen, and maybe a minute and a half long. Oh, videos. That was out of the question. Downloading, transferring videos. So it was just character-based data is about all you could do back then. And that would be like, again, painting the screen from one that's connected locally to the network. And you just send, again, the screenshots, essentially, over the wire. It's the only thing that it could handle. But Cuban, so we started, our companies at the same time did a little better. He started a company called Micro Solutions. His secretary, by the way, 
had uh, forged some checks and stolen some equipment and almost put him in bankruptcy. And he got a little funding, 500 bucks to keep it going from a former customer. But he ended up selling that company. This is incredible, honestly, in 1990 for $6 million bucks. It was only $30 million of revenue, probably wasn't making 50000 bucks a year, honestly. And it was CompuServe who bought it. He was heavily involved with CompuServe. That was an online service that's kind of predates typical Internet, if you will. You would have different boards and messaging capability and information sources and the ability to chat with others. He sold it for $6 million. He was 32. And then he founded AudioNet. That's what became Broadcast.com. Sold that for $5.7 billion in 99 to Yahoo. Coming right back with Ellen Daniels. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays. We are live from the Element Wealth Studio. Day two of this week in August. We welcome to the program Ellen Daniels, Literary Director for the 2023 Mississippi Book Festival. Ellen, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, Gerard. Tell us about the book festival that's coming up August 19th. On Saturday. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've got a big year planned. Uh, there's going to be something for every Mississippian there. And it's going to be a great day. It's going to be hot. So just everybody know that we are making accommodations for that. We'll have lots more fans, a misting station, and we'll be giving away waters all day long. Where are we going to be? We're going to be at the state capitol yep. um, and in Galloway United Methodist Church. And all of the um, exhibitors and everything, like our booksellers, the children's tent, Authors Alley, all that's going to be on the south lawn of the state capitol building and on Mississippi Street. Yeah, um, and let's see, you've got some deal worked out with the Westin, too, is that right? Oh, yeah. Hotel? Yeah, tell us about um, that. The Westin is our host hotel, and um, this is the first year that we have really, um, it's always been where we put the panelists up, our authors, but this year we were like, you know, the Westin has been so amazing to work with, and it's a wonderful hotel, they've got a great restaurant, and so we're like, we'll open it up to the public with a great rate. And that thing filled up a month ago. Wow. Yeah. And it's not far from the Capitol there. Oh, yeah. No. So everything's right there. you mm-hmm. got the Capitol, got the church, mm-hmm. Galloway, and then you got uh, the Weston right down the street. You know, and I think that's one of the great things is we keep it all very centralized. You know, the festival site is at the state Capitol. We have the Weston. We have a Friday night party at the Mississippi Museum of Art for authors and our funders. And that's just, you just walk right out the back of the Weston, and there you are at the museum. And then our Saturday night party is at Howlin' Mouse. So it's all just right there. So would you describe this, Ellen, as an event that's designed to sort of bring the the readers and the authors together? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's kind of one of the things about the magic about the Mississippi Book Festival. You know, it has definitely grown over the years since our first one in 2015. But we haven't gotten so big that... Um, audience members don't feel the intimacy that they're very close to their favorite author. Yeah. 
Uh, how, how is book writing going? I don't know what the term is, but are, are we seeing more authors, fewer authors, more books, fewer books? What's the status? There are more books published every year. Um, I mean, it just it's more and more every single year. So that's great news for book lovers because people are still buying books. They're still reading books. And there is, you know, there's a real hunger for all different types of books. Yeah. So... Um, how is the the digital age and the digital publication of books? How has that changed it? Are people still buying physical books, hard copy books, uh, combination? Yeah, I mean, you know, I know some people that have like e-readers, like a Kindle yeah. or a Nook or something like. I don't even know if they make Nooks anymore, actually. But and like my sister, who is out at her barn all day, listens to at least three books. On, listens to it. Okay, you know, yeah, that's like, common has too. All you know, audio books. But so many people are still buying physical books. There's something about holding a book. And this is an interesting fact. Last year, the Department of Revenue called us about a month before the festival, and they were like, this is the year that y'all have to collect taxes for everything being sold on the festival site. So that that was um, a little bit of a runaround at first, (laughs) but it gave us a really incredible figure. From 9 a.m. in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, we sold almost $100,000 in books on the festival site. Wow. So... That's a bunch of books. It's a lot of books. So on average, if you say that um, books are $20 a piece, that was over 4,000 books. So are these being sold by booksellers who mm-hmm. exhibit, bring their some of their inventory to yeah. the festival? So we have independent booksellers on our booksellers row, Lemuria Books here in Jackson. They yeah. are our official bookseller. Then we have University Press. Friendly City Books from Columbus, Lorelei from Vicksburg, and various others. And then we have 10 independent booksellers this year. But then we have Authors Alley, which is where our self-published independent authors are. Okay. And we have over 90 of them there this year. Wow. Interesting. Mississippi, of course, has a, a history of very famous book uh, authors, I should say. Absolutely. And uh, we're, we're known worldwide. For that, you know, um, one of our panelists emailed me today uh, earlier this week. His name is Wayne Flint. He wrote a book about Harper Lee, and he is originally from Pontotoc, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And he just said, you know, I, the good Lord made Mississippi first when it comes to creative writing, and no I have doubt. to agree with him. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Wonder why that is. You know, I don't know, but we are all born storytellers. Some of us are just published, but um, as I've heard, one of my favorite authors that comes to the festival every year, in the South, storytelling is like competitive sport. Yeah. Um, And so we all just, we love a good story. Um, And it just, I think it's part of, you know, we don't, you know, we're not New York City. We don't have like these you know, we're not the center of like the visual art world with all these museums. I think I hate to say this, but I mean, I love Mississippi, born and raised Mississippian. Boredom breeds creativity. Hmm. I mean, you know, don't and have then, as much to distract you. And, yeah. You know, I mean, we don't we don't have the uh, the sorts of attractions that a New York City would. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. I bet there is some truth to that. So and that's and that that can play into my whole thing about. Everybody having like smartphones now. No one's ever bored. Yeah. So I mean, there's something valuable about boredom. It yeah. cre- it it you know inspires you to use your imagination and your mind and be creative. Hadn't thought about that. Hadn't thought, but that that makes total sense. And I, I wonder if that's also uh, uh, you could describe as attributing Mississippi with so much uh, musical oh uh, production. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, talk to our friend Steve Azar, my colleague, honestly, that um, I've, I ask him that all the time. You know, what's the inspiration? He, and he, he often will say it's, just, it's the colorful culture mm-hmm. of our state that's well, inspiring. We're a really a melting pot of different types of people, and yeah. Steve is from the Delta, and as from the Delta, you know, I'm a Delta girl myself, you know, there's not a whole lot to do there, yeah. and we have to be, you know, imaginative. And Steve will be at the festival on Saturday okay. with one Mississippi, you know, his song that he um, was commissioned by the uh, our former governor, Phil Bryant, to write as the, you know, state song. They've made a children's book out of it, him and Sarah Francis Hardy. I didn't know that. So um, they will be having an event in the children's tent. Sarah Francis will read the book, and then Steve uh, Azar will play the, will perform the song. He's a great uh, ambassador. He is. He is for the state of Mississippi, and we have uh, so many as well that uh, make our state known for uh, so much goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, often in the eyes of, of many, we are maligned and, and don't have the greatest reputation, but that's because they don't know the whole story. They only see part of it. Exactly. And that's what is so one of the things I really love about this event is so many authors come from all over the country and they have never been to Mississippi. And then they get here and they love it. We just got to get them here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. Once they get here and they're exposed to it, and they see how great, how kind the people are to everybody. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Um, in fact, I would I would suggest we we aren't as tribal as many societies are. We we integrate with and interact with a lot of people that don't necessarily have our similar backgrounds. And you you know, Mississippi is kind of ahead of the game in a lot of ways in that because we've all been together, and you know, and we you know, appreciate other people's cultures, different types of people's cultures, the way that, you know, a lot of bigger places are insulated. Yeah. You know, they're like kind of living in a bubble. Yeah. And we're all just kind of together and just doing the best we can. We still have, we have our problems. Sure. Yeah. But everywhere does. But it seems like that, um, Ella, would make for great subject matter Mm -hmm. for an author. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you could pull from all those experiences and just observations and anecdotes and and creates pretty good books. I mean, we have some of the biggest authors in the entire world working right now from this state, two of them from Jackson. I mean, Richard Ford, who is coming to the book festival, he is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, um, world famous. Uh, Kiese Lehman, who is from Jackson, he's a MacArthur genius. He was, uh, you know, awarded a MacArthur grant this Mm. year. Um, Jasmine Ward, who lives on the coast, two National Book Awards, I mean, within like three years of each other. I mean, I think William Faulkner at least waited like 10 years before (laughs) he won his second National Book Award. (laughs) Angie Thomas, who is from Jackson. I mean, she is a literary rock star in the young adult world. So I wonder this, uh, Ellen, just thinking about folks coming in here that have never been to Mississippi, you're only a couple of blocks away from Eudora Welty's home. Exactly. They all know who Eudora Welty is. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, and that's one of the things that we offer our authors that come. And we, we, um, the Mississippi Department of History and Archives is a great partner for the book festival. And, you know, they have the Welty House. And so they offer private tours to authors who are coming from all over to see Mrs. Welty's house because it is a literary treasure. Yeah. Uh, your website describes it as a literary lawn party. Yes. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's happening this Saturday, right? This Saturday. Does it cost anything? It's free and open to the public. And you can see books, meet with authors, mm-hmm. other book enthusiasts. Exactly. As well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Capitol downtown. Yes, sir. 
All right. And you can find out more by going to the website, msbookfestival.com. Ellen Daniels, literary director of the 2023 Mississippi Book Festival. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me again. You bet. We're coming right back, folks, with more. We got Robert Dozier, executive director of the Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association at 12.05 today. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now, onto the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. Just as I thought it was going all right, I found out I'm wrong when I thought it was right. It's always the same, it's just a shame. That's all. We are back in the Element Well studio. Let's see, Rhino, we got something coming up with Guns N' Roses. You know about that? A v- oh, yeah. A VIP contest, right? Yeah, all you got to do is stop by any of the boxes and put your name in the hat for a chance to win tickets to see Guns N' Roses on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. You'll get a stay. You'll get a limo ride to and from. I mean... What's not to love about that? Pretty cool. Go to supertalk.fm slash GNR to find a registration box near you. you got to be 21, of course, to enter. Yeah, because they're going to be at the Coast Coliseum in Biloxi on September the 20th to give you an idea of when it's going to be. And you'll be staying at the Beau Rivage with a limo ride to and from the concert. That's pretty neat. That ought to be a lot of fun. Charles and Matheson says five meg hard drives, which needed occasional table drops to unstick the park drive heads. <laughs> That's true. The old Winchester drives, they call them. Uh, it's interesting. Just one more bit of trivia about Cuban. When he sold his company, his original PC company, to CompuServe, and they really kind of pioneered the idea of going to one place. On the internet, this was before you had ubiquitous, pervasive internet internet that you do today. But you go to one place to see news and sports and entertainment, and then they launched a, a chat feature where you could talk to other people from around the world. That was actually owned by H and R Block, and they were also offering at the time private wide area connectivity, wide area networking connectivity to corporate America. It was a way to connect their offices. Again, long before all this ubiquitous, pervasive connectivity we have available today that's got tons of capacity and is quite inexpensive, companies that wanted to connect their multiple offices that were dispersed, that's how they had to do it. Had to have a wide area network, a private wide area network, and you could you could um, pay CompuServe, essentially, to set that up for you and manage it. And it's hard to believe they paid $6 million bucks to Cuban for his little company. And it's because they were going to try to take – H&R Block was going to try to leverage what he had built and really grow that part of their business, just looking to diversify from just tax preparation services. Didn't really work out. 
too well for him, honestly. But it's uh, interesting. Then he went on to foundbroadcast.com, sold it for $5.9 billion back in the 90s. Tell me why so many, speaking of which, tell me why so many millionaires and billionaires are Democrats. By the way, Cuban, as we mentioned, is calls himself an independent, describes himself as an independent. Not a Trump fan. He's been vocal in that respect. Why are they Democrats, millionaires and billionaires? Stand by all these Democrats wanting to tax them more. It is kind of um, interesting. There's a group, what's it called, Rhino Patriotic Billionaires or Millionaires or something like that. Have you ever seen that, that where they're asking the government to tax them more? Patriotic, I've, I've seen them. Members of that group interview wealthy people. I don't know. Patriotic millionaires. Millionaires, okay, not billionaires. Um, you know, I've thought about that as well. Why do they seem to turn into? I don't think they start out that way. They seem to gravitate towards Democrats and Democrat policy and higher taxes. Like in this case, you're reading it right. Patriotic millionaires, please tax us more, government. It's insane. The only thing I could come up with, and it's just a, a theory, do they feel a little guilt, maybe? I don't know. Now, I have seen Cubans... I would argue those are the people that inherited their wealth, because you can't be that dumb and make a million dollars. That's true. I, I think you're right. But if you look at the billionaire class, which there's only 750, now Biden says there's 1,000, and there's some dispute about that. It doesn't matter. 750 to 1,000 out of 330 million ain't a lot. But they always like to paint this picture that all of those people inherited their wealth and didn't produce anything, and therefore it's okay to go confiscate some of their wealth. And that's not true. If you look at the list of billionaires today, the vast majority, they earned it. They produced something for society. Look at the top, top names we're all familiar with. Or Musk. they were born with the last name Walton. But that's only, what, five, six of them? But, and that is an exception. But... Okay, honestly, their ancestor, Sam himself, who was fired by J.C. Penney when they told him, you got no chance of a career in retail. Who said, to hell with you? And he created Walmart. Uh, but, it's so, yeah, sure, and it's, but as time has progressed, that's the point. We have produced more billionaires, the nation has, because they have produced something for society, and they got rewarded for it. So, Whereas these idiot millionaires think, oh, yeah, let's just funnel money to the most inequitable, inefficient organization on the planet. That is, really is what's dumb when you think about it. Is why in the world would you think it prudent, efficient, wise to send more money from the worst stewards of money on the planet, and that's the federal government. Last night when I spoke, I shared with a group the most recent report from the General Accounting Office. I'm talking about from the government. This isn't Gerard just making this up. Uh, an assessment, an analysis of what they called improper payments. Not waste, not abuse, just incompetency on the part of the federal government. $270 billion. 
and the top program where improper payments are found? Medicaid. Number two, Medicare. Is it any surprise? No. By the way, improper payments in Medicaid, and, and while I know a lot in our audience, a lot in the country, and I'm certainly not not uh, being disrespectful to them or downplaying this, which is they get bent out of shape about all the money we send to Ukraine. I'm with them. But we don't talk enough about right under our nose. Orders of magnitude more money than we shove down to Ukraine that we'd have no idea where it's going or what it's doing. We can't produce any any measurable results for that investment. You know the old return on investment concept? We don't seem to apply that, do we, in the federal government? But we got $80 billion of fraud in Medicaid. It's $750 billion program. So I, my message to the Medicaid expansion proponents in Mississippi, you might be able to get more support for your agenda there if you would stand up and say, okay, but the first thing we got to do is get rid of all the dang fraud and improper payments. And that's happening. That's absolutely happening. And it's happening in Mississippi. And I'm not I'm not being disrespectful to Mississippi's division of Medicaid. They're at the mercy of the federal government, which funds over 75% of it. And it's their rules. It's their regulations. It's their process that we have to follow. And it just breeds these improper payments. Let's go rein that in first and root that out first before we start spending more. That's what you'd have to do in the private sector because you don't have a printing press. Oh, it's, we, we uh, improperly paid $80 billion in Medicaid. Oh, just go print some more. That's what they can do. And that's why you run down the store and, my gosh, that's expensive. I've been traveling a bit and have to, um, on the fly, as I did last night. And, you know, 9 o'clock or so at night, you're kind of limited in choices on what you can eat. drive through. I don't think you can do it anymore for less than ten bucks. It's, there's, is there a single digit on the dollar side on the left side of the decimal point drive-through deal? What happened to that? Inexpensive. Maybe Taco Bell. Maybe what two tacos? <laughs> yeah, you can get two tacos and a Baja Blast that's, for under ten bucks. That's about it. Uh, you know I'm. I don't know that I could survive off two tacos. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's crazy. But there's no talk about that. It's $270 billion of improper payments. And there's just no discussion of it. I do think it's crazy to send more money to the federal government and expect all these leftists, y'all give me more money and expect some sort of measurable improvements in society. That's nuts. That's just not happening. Think about all the various programs through the years that have either failed or grossly underperformed. How much money has been spent on the war on drugs? I, I, I don't even... Billions. On poverty. Really winning that war, aren't we? Yeah. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio.
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Ah, yes, Tennessee Ernie Ford. <laughs> okay, I just uh, step outside the studio here. I noticed the break room's full of donuts. Right? Like Krispy Kreme donuts in there. How about that? Man, pretty cool. Uh, on the ceasefire text line, athletes that make $50 million a year drive me nuts. Where does this money come from? Steve from Macomb. Why does that bother you, Steve? It comes from the market. So think about the, the business model. The uh, professional athletics is a business. It's a business. Those owners own those franchises, own those teams. They pay money. That's an expense to the athletes and all the other operating costs. They receive revenue, of course, from tickets, merchandise, advertising, television, etc. They make it work. As long as we keep watching them on TV, going to the stadiums to or the courts to see them perform, buying all the stuff, they're going to pay them. It drives revenue and profit for them. I just noticed, Rhino, I know you keep up with this stuff. Lionel Messi, of course. I think he's the most highly compensated athlete, professional athlete in the world. What, what was it Saudi Arabia offered him? A billion to kick a soccer ball. He's in Miami. I just saw a report here in the studio on the Business Channel. A screen was displayed showing the price of a ticket to see a game in Miami, a soccer game, before Lionel Messi and after. 5X. And that's just tickets. That's not even taking into consideration all the other a revenue that just that one athlete's presence will produce. I've actually used the example of him relative to Fortune CEOs because the left, Democrats in this country, constantly condemn, castigate, demonize, demean corporate CEOs. They're overpaid, exploiting their workers. Never do they say a disparaging word about a professional athlete. Not that I want them to. I don't want them to say a disparaging word about anyone based on their income unless their income was achieved illegally. And that's not the case of Mr. Messi or corporate executives. 
The market is the only fair, pure arbiter of price and wages. Not central planning, big government, Democrat, socialist. And in the case of these professional athletes, like Mr. Messi, actually research this. What you hear the Democrats say all the time, for example, with respect to health care. It's those health care insurance company CEOs, that's why the price of insurance is so high. The five of them insure about three-quarters of all in America who have private coverage. Five, CEO, five companies, five CEOs. Their combined pay compensation, less than Lionel Messi's. I don't have a problem with that. I'm just pointing out the duplicity of their grievance. So, Mr. Messi, who kicks a soccer ball for a living, and he's fantastic. He's got incredible, special, unique, one-in-a-billion God-given talent. And we're willing to pay to witness that. That's the market. That's great. And the point I'm trying to make here is that there are about as many people who can run one of these gigantic health care companies as there are who can hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Honestly, they're fewer. And that's how the market works. And that's the way it should be. So I don't ever get upset about that, unless it's illegal. When it's illegal, then I got a problem with it. Like Hunter Biden, you know, and the Biden family. What value did they provide to society? Treason, (laughs) selling influence in this country for financial gain. Crickets out of the left on that, of course. Former President Donald Trump, on the other hand, now faces 91 charges across four criminal indictment cases. 13 last night, where a Georgia grand jury indicted Mr. Trump. He's 77, by the way. Charged him with felony racketeering, conspiracy, false statements, and asking a public official to violate their oath of office. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and we probably got to get one in here to unravel all this for us, for us. I'm not sure any of that meets the legal standard for committing crime. Uh, I mean, questioning the outcome of an election is not illegal. Hell, that's been going on since the early days of this country, honestly. There were questions. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen the history on that. Oh, yeah. We could fill two full segments with just sound bites from just Democrats questioning election outcomes since all 2000-ish. At least. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. So I got to tell you, folks, I when I got home last night after enjoying the good folks in Smith County. And I was listening to the proceedings headed back to Ridgeland, where I live, on um, Sirius Radio. And then I 
I got in and I turned on the television. Of course, it, every channel was carrying it live. This was bizarre. Prime time. A county DA in prime time. In my view, grandstanding. Giddy. Ecstatic. You said it, Rhino. All about attention to themselves. That just seems to define our culture these days, doesn't it? Is it social media that did it, maybe? You talk about the dopamine effect of social media? I think it's certainly a contributing factor. I mean, the hundred-plus years of Hollywood celebrities getting an outsized amount of attention probably helped. That's a good point. And, I mean, athletes... Because in the old days, you know, you got like one game a week that you saw your athletes, and if anything else you, you found out about them, you read in the newspaper the next day. Now, think about it, which I think is great. We got access to sports and sporting events and sporting celebrities around the clock on a number of different media formats. This just looked to me like this person trying to have their day of fame in the sun. Who the heck knew who the DA of Fulton County was? The people of Fulton County don't know who the DA of Fulton County is. But there she stood at the podium, and it was the way in which she addressed the press in attendance. Like a celebrity, flanked by, you know, her... DA's uh, attorney colleagues in her office. And she just seemed, again, like, I'm the one. I'm going to put the death nail in Donald Trump's coffin. Look at me. That's what bothered me about it more than anything. Like, no, this is nothing to celebrate. And you're celebrating it. She says that this thing will get done in six months. They'll go to trial. Which... Lawyers I've talked to said that's an awfully short timetable for something like this, of this magnitude, with these charges. The sheriff has indicated intent to capture mugshot photographs of the former president. I don't know about that. And that's grandstanding, too. But here's what I think is going on, honestly. I don't think... These in these various indictments that those who levied the charges and who were involved as prosecutors, I don't necessarily think they believe their cases have sufficient merit for them to prevail. I think it's an effort to tie the former president up during the most critical period of campaigns and caucuses and primaries with the hope of diminishing his ability to win. And I think they think the ends justify the means here. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi.
Back in the Element Well studio. We appreciate you joining us today. So, uh, on the ceasefire text line, Bubba and Starkville says 100% correct, fix it first, talking about the, the improper payments analysis we shared earlier Medicaid. 80 billion tops the list 270 billion of improper payments in 2022 according to the congressional budget office this is straight from the government's official information so also on the ceasefire tax line 270 billion would go a long way towards writing social security gosh i they were talking about the improper payments i wish that were the case it's the unfunded liabilities are uh, multi-trillions, a lot. And in fact, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget just published a, an article I, I read yesterday that details the long-term projections for Social Security, and it's not good. In fact, they said that it's quickly approaching insolvency, Ten years. Ten years from insolvency, unless something's done about it. And what would happen, because the program would experience a cash flow deficit, by the way, this year, the deficit, $154 billion. In other words, the amount going out exceeds the amount coming in from payroll contributions plus interest on investment. That's where it gets its income, Social Security. The amount that workers pay into the fund, uh, the amount of interest earned on the trust fund, and then it then has to dip into the trust fund. That's just accumulated surpluses over the years. $154 billion upside down last year. So over the subsequent, over the next decade, Social Security will run $3.5 trillion in deficits over the next 10 years, which is incredible. So the CBO now says, in 10 years, if we don't have more coming in, we're going to have to cut benefits. Ain't that a lovely thought? Average by 400 bucks a month is what they're saying, is how much benefits would have to be trimmed to make ends meet. So these aren't very encouraging figures, and again, there's nothing that you hear much from our Congress on addressing this, and if you even mention it, gosh, you just get you get blown up by folks, honestly, on both sides of the aisle, just this morning. Hakeem Jeffries, he's kind of the speaker of the House in waiting, if you will, Democrat, should the Democrats take control of that chamber? Just tweeted this morning. No, he X'd. What do you call it now when you make a... It's still tweeting. Okay. <laughs> Social Security is an important part of the fabric of the American dream. Right-wing extremists want to destroy it. President Biden and House Democrats will never let that happen. You see the hyperbole there? Oh, so... 
In other words, you're just going to let it fail. Because the only thing you've proposed Yeah, because then the clapping seals that support his idiotic rear end are going to go, yeah, it's the Republicans' fault, it failed. And you need us. You must elect us. We will fix this for you. And the only thing that they've proposed is getting rid of the cap. So right now, you know, on income above $160,000, you don't pay Social Security taxes, the 6.4% of your income. They want to lift that, which would then cause those who earn more than that to continue to pay Social Security taxes on those earnings. Send it to the government to fund Social Security benefits. Plus, they want to mean, further means test, put more strict means testing on Social Security benefits, which would mean the very people who they want to go shake down for more money to improve the solvency of their program, would never get a dime out because they wouldn't qualify. Not because it's broke, because they wouldn't qualify. So you're going to go to them and say, you pay more in, and by the way, when you get ready to retire, you're not getting anything out. And they're describing that as fair. I kid you not. You pay in your whole life, you pay more than everybody else because you earn more, and then when you get ready to retire and draw benefits, you get nothing, and you'll like it. They want to make a sliver of the population fund the welfare, the benefit, the largesse for the whole rest of the population. That's their idea. That's what they've essentially evolved our government into, a giant redistribution apparatus while they skim off the top. It's disgusting. We're stepping aside for Fox News and Super Talk News. Robert Dozier, Mississippi Independent Pharmacies, is next. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. The afternoon portion of Middays Live from the Element Well Studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. We welcome now to the Element Wealth Studio Robert Dozier. He's the Executive Director of the Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association. Always good to see you there, Robert. What's going on? Good to see you, sir. How you doing? All right, so this is uh, anything that deals with the pharmaceutical industry seems like uh, is in the news. Uh, That's correct. Constantly. On all sides. Right. All fronts. Right. Federal level, state level, certainly here within our state. Yes, sir. Um, Our legislature has considered legislation. I know you've been involved in that as well, uh, related to the industry. Uh, We, of course, 
have witnessed supply chain constraints, especially since COVID. That really brought to light just how much we rely on. We were talking about it off the air, uh, China for production. Unfortunately, you're correct. Of drugs that we, we use, we need. I talked to a close friend of mine I play golf with on a regular basis this weekend about uh, the shortage of chemotherapy drugs, which yes. has got national attention. And honestly, he started ex- explaining it to me and kind of what action they're taking uh, to uh, to address it. It was over my head uh, when he started getting into the various standards of dosages and, and uh, generics versus name brands and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's complicated. It is. The, the, Extremely complicated. The, the prescription drug world or or chain, so to speak, from the ma- all the way from the manufacturer to the patient. It's a lot of players in there, and it is a very confusing um, chain, yeah. so to speak. I mean, yeah. you, you have drug manufacturers, you have pharmacies, drug wholesalers, pharmacy benefit managers, insurance companies, um, and and you know, and by the time it gets to Miss Smith, um, there's there a lot of people have touched that prescription drug. It's uh, and and the price of of uh, of drugs of prescription drugs, I. I kind of liken it to the price of airfare. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I go 200 miles, it costs me a thousand bucks. I go a thousand miles, it costs me 200 bucks. Yeah. That, and and, pres- and price of prescription drugs is like not logical often. Uh, you know, if you if you stop right here and you go from the Biden administration all the way back to say um, uh, Bush Senior. Every presidential administration has always wanted to tackle the high cost of prescription drugs. Sure, but n- n- it doesn't matter if it's a Republican administration or a Democrat. Neither one, none of them have done it. They've always talked a good talk, and prescription drugs have steadily gone up, up, up over the years. And everybody's always wanted to point the finger at Big Pharma, the brand name drug manufacturers. Well, I'm not going to sit here and say you know they're totally innocent in this, but they're not the 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 only problem. We have this this middleman out there, pharmacy benefit managers. That's they've they have been hiding behind the curtain, so to speak, all these years. But they have a lot to do with the high cost of prescription drugs out here, and in. If Congress doesn't do something and the state legislatures across the country, if they don't do something, prescription drugs are steadily going to go up and up. I mean, if you mm. if you just stop and think about it, employer groups out here, it could be a Mississippi company, a national company, or wherever, employer groups' health care costs are steadily going up. The employees, the patients, their monthly premiums, their co-pays are steadily going up. Pharmacies' reimbursement is steadily going down. So what's wrong with that picture right there? If those three entities are having problems, who who's who's making the money? Where's the money going to? It's not going to the pharmacies, you know, and the employer groups and the uh, employees. They're spending more, um, getting less as well. So it's these insurance companies, the pharmacy benefit managers, um, and and so on. They they're a problem in this this chain that we have right here. Well. So here's the dilemma, the way I see it, is we, we, uh, we need insurance. Most of us cannot take the risk of trying to pay for what might be medical expenses that we just don't anticipate. It's the reason we have insurance, to, to mitigate that risk. And, and, of course, drugs, pharmaceuticals are, are part of that, could be part of a treatment regimen. So we need that. But what's wrong with the the insurance ecosystem that's causing this imbalance? Like you say, the the uh, the, the price 
is uh, is going up, but it's, but it's not making its way to the retailers who sell these drugs, the pharmacies. That's so, correct. And there's there's, there's middle uh, actors in the supply chain that I guess are siphoning off some of the profit. That that is true. So right now. There are three big uh, pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. The biggest three are Caremark, um, Express Scripts, and OptumRx. They control 80% of the marketplace hmm. right there, 80%. So that tends to make me believe there's somewhat of a monopoly out there. And so if we want to have a... a um, a marketplace that is free and healthy, there needs to be competition. There needs to be transparency out there. Um, there is no transparency in this ph- prescription drug world right here because the pharmacy benefit managers, they don't want transparency. Transparency to a PBM is kind of like sunlight to a vampire. You know, it just they, they don't want it. They don't like transparency. One thing is that's that's one of the problems that we're seeing is the high cost of drugs. Prescription drugs are going up because the pharmacy benefit managers require the brand name drug manufacturers, big pharma, to pay these these rebates to get on these drug formularies. So big pharma out here, I'm taking up for big pharma and I, yeah. I don't represent them or anything like that. Big pharma has to pay to play. If they want their drugs on this preferred drug list or this formulary, they have to pay this rebate. And so, Mm. therefore, you would think that this rebate is passed down to the end user, the patient, the employee. But it's not nine times out of ten. It's pocketed by the pharmacy benefit manager. And and that's one thing. Sitting in the middle. Exactly. You know, and there are other ways as well, too. You know, um, they use uh, pharmacy benefit managers. uh, They want to use a outdated benchmark called AWP, average wholesale price. Well, that has been um, there's a lot of scrutiny on that. It's been a lot of litigation. Former Attorney General Jim Hood settled a massive case uh, many years ago for the state of Mississippi, uh, somewhere maybe 20, 30 million dollars that Mississippi was was uh, basically over overbilled, overpaid hmm. on, on this AWP right. methodology. So this AWP methodology only benefits the pharmacy benefit managers. And so we need to move away from that AWP methodology for more transparency and such. Interesting. Well, uh, the Biden administration, you were talking about that earlier, how the government uh, seems to always talk about the need to rein in the price and certainly the increase of a prescription drugs. They come out with this this plan in the Inflation Reduction Act, which allows, at least this is the way they, they describe it, allows Medicare to negotiate. But I, it doesn't seem like that's exactly what it is. It's more like Medicare says, this is what I'm paying, take it or leave it. And there's concerns about how that might affect future innovation and even availability. Yeah, of prescription drugs. Yeah, I, you know, and I like I, I go back to the fair competition and everything else. While I go, we you know we have to have fair competition, and you know the drug manufacturers they go out there and they take the risk to develop the drug, you yeah. know, R and D and everything, you know, and and every, and they have a lot of expense in this. Um, we don't really need to hand, handcuff them and, and such, but the we we need to. This this administration and the previous administrations, they all they've all focused on the drug manufacturer. Yeah, that's part of the problem. I agree, but you have to turn the page and look past the drug manufacturer and say, okay, 
why what else is driving the cost up yeah. right here because it's a complex ecosystem it, it, it is i'm i'm not going to deny it it is very complex and and over the past uh, year or two really a, a lot of sunlight has been shown on this whole model that we're looking at this Before whole chain. Robert, what would you like to see the state do here from, uh, the, a, from a legislative perspective? The state really needs to pass PBM transparency for employers and patients. They also need to maybe look at seeing if they're getting the best deal uh, with the state employees' insurance health plan. Uh, they also need to ensure that their pharmacies – chain and independent pharmacies in the state of Mississippi can survive in this marketplace and be able to uh, give the citizens of Mississippi the safe health care that they need and deserve. Gotcha. I know you're going to be working with the legislature next session, right? We try to. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Well, I hope they're listening and they hear you because they they need to speak more uh, frankly with you about this issue. I know you're deeply involved in it and know all the ins and outs of it and Hopefully we can get something done. All right, my friend. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Robert Dozier, Executive Director of Mississippi Independent Pharmacists Association, has been our guest here on Middays. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studio. If you ever want to make your head hurt, just like go search pharmacy benefit managers. I'm gonna do it right now. I, I've done this before because uh, I I spent some time trying to understand exactly what they do. They don't, and he's right. It's uh it's rather opaque, if you know what I mean. And that, that is a problem. I think that just shining the light and having some transparency would would go a long way, perhaps be as effective as just more players in the industry. But if you do that, and you know how there's a an option in Google at the top, a bar-style menu where you can pick images, and you, and you drill down to images and look at Pharmacy Benefit Manager. It'll hurt your head. He's right. Looking at the flow chart between the manufacturer to the patient and everything in between, and you read it, you look at it and say, huh? It's, uh, really, you got to be a genius to figure it out. And there may be some truth to the, uh, the efforts on their part to overcomplicate it so that you can't figure it out. And maybe some transparency would call attention to it and just change the environment. 
on the ceasefire text line, Mike from Grand Bay, Alabama. I take Entresto. First time I went to pick it up, the cost was $1,700. I said no and then went to the manufacturer. I got a coupon. It now costs $10 for 90 days. Explain that. I can't. I, can't. I, I don't know. I mean, it's... I mean, sounds a little an, crazy, but it's an oversimplification. But think about the stereotypical drug pusher from those '80s PSAs, where they give you the first dose for free. Yeah, that's true. To come back. That that's true. Just to get you linked in there. Because if you if they give you enough coupons for say a year, yeah, then they've taken a bit of a hit, but. You've also spent a year using their medication, and you've seen the results. And then when their coupons are no longer valid or they quit giving them to you, you're faced with a choice. Find a different drug that could have different side effects or hit the hip. Yeah, and that, uh, that's a very common, as you know, very common marketing approach. Or that You could apply that similar concept. Uh, publications. I, sometimes I click on articles I want to read and... You know how that is. It's your last one for free. Just sign up here. It's a dollar a month for three months, and it's automatic for centuries. Or so. You know what I mean? It's not a bad idea, honestly. They're, they're trying to introduce it to you. It's like a, you know, a try-and-buy sort of deal. And uh, it's, it's not, a, not a bad concept. It's, it seems a little different, though, when you're talking about drugs. I don't know why. It just feels a little different. Maybe not. Thomas and Greenwood says, so he's calling for central planning price controls. No, I didn't hear that. No, I didn't hear that, Tom. So I think, uh, and we talked about it a bit before he left. And he's calling for more competition, but I don't want, uh, the only way the government could promote more competition, in my view, is if there are some sorts of governmental regulatory barriers to entry, other than just the normal business uh, obstacles of, of the need for capital and organization and so forth and routes to market, et cetera, production, is what I'm hearing. And so I do agree that the light needs to be shined more here. Now, how to achieve that's a different story. Also says, pass the law where you can buy straight from the manufacturer and bypass post both the PBM and pharmacies. Thomas, that sounds like central planning. You want to pass a law. Hmm. What if the manufacturer says, no, I don't want to sell to you direct? The market will work that out. There shouldn't be any laws involved in that. If manufacturers wanted to bypass retailers and so-called middlemen, then they ought to be able to make that call or not. Also, well, so will my scheme to get Medicaid work, Gerard? I don't know what your scheme is there, Thomas. I doubt it, though. I don't know what work means either. That gets to be a little, little dicey. Twelve tapes for a penny. Yeah, I remember that. The old, you're talking about the old Columbia Records sort of deal? Is that what, what they're talking oh, about? Oh, yeah. There? Yeah. And then they send you another one that you didn't order every month, and if you don't send it back to them in pristine condition, you're going to get billed for it. Bill for it. And they're usually terrible. It's the stuff they can't, can't sell on their own accord, right? 
Watch the Netflix documentary Painkiller or the Oxy on the Oxycontin opioid backstory and inside practices. Yeah, I, I think there was malfeasance there, no doubt about it. And McKinsey, a um, prominent business consulting organization, they were the ones who advised all these blue chip corporations and governments around the world, not necessarily here. They settled. I think it was a couple of years ago for six hundred million, because of their role in helping turbocharge. Is what the suit said. Opioid sales. McKinsey all uh, also, by the way, was the group that kind of came up with a concept of so-called outsourcing, offshoring, as we are familiar with. They're the ones that persuaded pharmaceutical companies are a big client industry of theirs. Back in the 70s, I believe, they're the ones that persuaded them, hey, you could go make this stuff in China a lot cheaper, ship it back over here, and produce more profit from it. I mean, now, I don't blame them for seeking the most profitable route to market. Nothing wrong with that. I just think it was a little short-sighted on their part not to realize the risk of putting all your your, your eggs in the Chinese basket, and that got exposed significantly during the COVID stuff when we couldn't find basic drugs we all relied on because China was shutting down the drug-making factories. You could also, I think, surmise, in my view, that corrupt unions in this country were a problem because they wanted ridiculous sums of money for their workers to make these products. And that's what drove them offshore. Just wasn't tenable. Wasn't viable. Yeah, the old Columbia Book Club. That's right. Twelve tapes for a penny. What is wrong with Social Security, says Red in Lumberton, is too many claiming to be hurt getting a check when you got millions getting that crazy check they haven't paid a dime in thanks to those Democrats years ago. Well, you're talking about the disability benefits. There's no doubt that disability benefits uh, are, are um, experience fraud. No doubt about that. But honestly, Red, that's a, a drop in the bucket relative to the fundamental structural $90 trillion of unfunded liabilities in Social Security and Medicare. It's it's just it's a defined benefit plan that doesn't work. Well, think about this. You got, what, 8.3% cost of living increases in Social Security this year, I believe, because it's tied to inflation. But you didn't pay any more in. The hope is, the expectation, which is a false one, is that, well... You're earning more on fixed income securities to offset that. You only can invest in one security, and that's special bonds from the federal government. So, unfortunately, I, I totally agree. There's definitely some improper payments in Social Security, and there there are some people who do not legitimately uh, are not legitimately entitled to disability benefits. No doubt about that. There's a whole industry, right? Rhino of people that for a living go find those who are receiving benefits from private insurance companies as well as public sources 
that ain't really disabled. No doubt about that. And you know who they're hurting? The people who truly are disabled and do need some sort of safety net from society. That's what happens. Yeah, we're all paying for their dishonesty. I agree. But that's not the fundamental core problem with Social Security's finances. It's a problem that needs to be addressed, no doubt about it. Let's see, as a military retiree, says Mose, Express Scripts has cornered the market. If we don't want to use them for a 90-day supply, they will increase it next year. Wow. Sounds like a monopoly. Well, yeah, it's a complicated subject matter. We're coming right back. Half an hour left in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, 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 Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studio. We appreciate you joining us. The markets, the Dow down 289. little check here, the NASDAQ 105, concerns about the Chinese economy. Meanwhile, I just saw Joe in Milwaukee getting ready to talk about Bidenomics. Oh, yeah. That's really been something, hasn't it? Unbelievable. Reese Clarksdale says, first secret to being wealthy is not worrying about other people's money. Absolutely correct, Reese. Totally agree. Preach that all the time as well. And I can tell you, in doing business transactions, there's a tendency to count other people's money at the closing table. Seen that happen before. Even though you knew what it was before you got in there. Been negotiating it for weeks, sometimes months. Can't do it, man. You drive yourself crazy. Sharon and Brandon says, can Trump be sworn in while in jail? Absolutely. I saw yesterday that Dick Morris, remember him, who was predicting Romney's victory? Famously, I guess that's where he rose to prominence. He worked for the Clintons, kind of turned into a Republican, and he was a journalist, became sort of a journalist and um, a uh, a contributor, I guess is what they would call it. He was really touting the idea that Romney was going to beat Barack Obama in his quest for term two. And he would just give you all these facts and figures and math and all this stuff. And he was just wrong, totally wrong. Well, he came out yesterday, I, I think MSNBC over there where the race lady is still has him on. And he came out yesterday and said, Trump's going to prison and will be an elected president in prison. Actually, this interview aired on Newsmax. He's going to prison and he will be elected from prison. 
said Mr. Morris. It will not make any difference at all. He is going to be able to win this election no matter what they throw at him. The interviewer asked, you think he's actually going to prison? Mr. Morris replied, yes. There you go. So, yeah, there's only three requirements to be president addressed in our law, in our Constitution. You've got to be 35 or older. Got to be a natural-born citizen. Not to be confused with a naturalized citizen. Rhino corrected me on that last time. I misspoke. I knew what I was trying to say. Just used the wrong word. And then the others, you got to live here 14 years. That's it. You can be a felon. So think about it. Mississippi, you can't vote as a felon, right? And the courts have come down it's and up said, in the air at this point." Yeah, the courts have come down and, and uh, they're they're calling into question Mississippi law. But you could be president, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. I got to hand it to the communists in the White House. They put one hell of a plan together to get Trump, says someone on the ceasefire text line. The Republicans are a bunch of wussies. Well, I think it's a matter of, you know, who's in charge, unfortunately. And I, I, I guess that I would take some contentment in the fact that Republicans aren't just chasing frivolous lawsuits. You don't want to do that. I don't think the Democrats care. They believe that it's in their best interest politically, and and what they believe is in their best interest politically is for Donald Trump not to be a candidate for president because he's leading in the polls significantly. His polls go up with every indictment. He's lapping the field of Republicans, and he's leading Biden. That's much closer in a matchup with Biden. And the whole election, I think, will come down once again to the independents in the handful of counties. And how did they feel about Trump and all these allegations against him? Will that influence their voting? Don't really know. Hard to tell. Nothing going on there at this point. Certainly we'll see. So William and Brandon, we were talking about just the compensation of high-profile people and celebrities, uh, athletes, corporate CEOs. I've only ever seen the Democrats demonize corporate CEOs. I've never seen them demonize artists, athletes, others in society that um, have produced a lot of income for themselves. But the corporate CEOs, I mean, they're just the bane of society. If we just killed them all, right? We just wiped them out, bliss would break out, right? That's what they want to portray. Forget athletes, says William. I'm curious as to how people in Congress are paid $174 a year but are worth millions in just a couple of terms. You know, I actually did a lot of research on that, William, and I was a little surprised to find out that's not the case. I do think there was a time when a person could get elected to Congress and they could enrich themselves in a short period of time. I, I'm not doubting that that happened, but I think it's been a few decades, honestly. There are over 100 people in the House of Representatives right now that live in their offices, simply cannot afford to live 
in an apartment or a residence in Washington, you know that they don't get a housing allowance. You're on your own on that. So think about that. You go to Washington as a member of Congress, you're a typical person with a mortgage or rent, and you go up there, you can't afford a second house on 174.4, especially in Washington, where we're talking about your rent earlier. Multiply that by about five in Washington, exaggerating a bit, but that area is the most expensive in the country. No doubt about it. Uh, and if you look, though, William, at, let's say, the top 50 in Congress and their net worth, starts at the top with Rick Scott, the senator from Florida. Made all his money in the private equity world. He's worth $260 million, I think. You looking at that, Rhino? I think his, his last filing shows him that. Maybe a little more than that. Yeah, it's right around there. And you go down the list, and you'll see it's a, it's a fairly equal split of Republicans and Democrats, although I want to say maybe Republicans are like the top three or four on the list there. And, they, and they, all of these people, if you look at their background, all had money long before they got to Congress, like Rick Scott like Daryl Issa, like Mike McCall. I'm not looking at it in front of me. I'm just recalling. And you go down to the bottom. Uh, Mike Braun, senator from Indiana, made his money in the manufacturing business. He's a first term in the Senate. They just got reelected. And I think the 50th wealthiest person in Congress, from a net worth perspective, sits at around $10 million, as I recall, net average net worth. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So then you go below that, and what you find is that the median net worth of a member of Congress, they're 535, 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate, of course, 535. The median net worth, meaning half or above it and half or below it, it's a million bucks. Now, when you think about including a home, your personal effects, assets, that's really, in this day and age, not a lot. A million-dollar net worth. Half of those members, half, are, what's that, 318, if I'm doing the math right? Half have a net worth below a million. In fact, when I look this up, there are a few that have filed for bankruptcy, sitting in Congress. I think AOC had, if I'm not mistaken. What's that crazy guy that lied his butt off in New York, George something or another? Remember him? Santos? Santos, yeah. I think he filed for bankruptcy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, and look, I, I'm not saying that they don't have opportunity. They do. But it's gotten to where it's so hard to do that without it just being totally exposed it's really pretty hard to get wealthy in that world. Now, when they're done, that's a different story. When they step down, and many of them do it thinking, I got working life left in me now that I've been a member of Congress and I got all this fame and I'm a, I could be a very valuable lobbyist, for example. Unbelievable how much money. Speaking engagements, write a book, all that sort of stuff. But while they're there, it's pretty hard. Now, if there's money being passed under the table, which would be completely illegal, I'm not suggesting that doesn't happen at all. 
None of that is reported, of course. I'm just sharing with you what are the facts that are at least available from a legal reporting perspective. Uh, there are some who have stepped down and said, I can't make ends meet. I think it was uh, was it uh, Representative Chaffetz from Utah said, I, I literally, I can't make ends meet. i got kids going to college. I'm having to travel out here. I don't, you know, housing's a problem. I'm living in my office and taking a shower in the house gym. We're coming right back with the final segment on Midday. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert, going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. So, William and Brandon says, Elon Omar was elected in 19 as a net worth of $83 million. I'm not trying to be contrary, but help me understand. I wouldn't trust those sites, is what I tell you, William. Uh, I understand where you're getting that data from, and uh, I wouldn't trust that. She hasn't earned $83 million as a matter, member of Congress unless somebody just gave her money. I'm not saying that didn't happen, but I, I would not trust that, honestly. There's a bunch of false information all over the place about net worth of individuals, not not just of members of Congress, but just people of fame. Because when you look at some of the more finance-related sources, they show her having a net worth of between a million and three. Also, which falls in line with her pack that has raised. That's right. Just just over three million. That's where most of her net worth is being attributed to her comes from. Uh, Daryl Issa was the one I was thinking about. I believe he's the wealthiest member of Congress. He's worth $450 bucks. He's a Republican House member from California. And uh, you know what? Let's see. He's not in the Congress anymore, right? I think he stepped down in 19, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 18, he said he would. I'm, I just pulled it up. But I, I remember him when we were on the break, and I think I've talked about this before, his family really co-founded a company that made automobile vehicle aftermarket security products worth $460 million he was at the time that he left Congress. Steel Stopper. Yeah, okay, that's it. And that's before vehicles were shipped with security systems built-in, standard issue from the factory. You'd have to go buy a security system, because this was from the early 80s when he founded that company. They made a fortune doing that. I want to say he had 
some relationship to, uh, what's the speaker company? Bose. thought there was some connection there. Could be wrong, because I know that, remember, Bose started making automobile speaker sort of products. They kind of started out as bookshelf speakers. They're famous for having the, the woofers that projected to the rear and used, like, the walls. They, you had to place them around a wall, I oh, think, yeah. as I recall. Clips horns as the, well. The movement of sound was their science. Okay, yeah. I thought there was some relationship to there. I could be wrong. It's because usually when you think of a speaker, it's, it is moving air at a certain frequency, recreating the sounds that you're putting through it. Bose figured out you don't have to have a bigger speaker. You just need to channel the air being pushed by the speaker better, and you get a fuller sound with less wattage. So, help me remember, did they still have conical speaker? Was the woofer itself a, a typical? I think so. Okay. I think they've upgraded to different technologies at this point, but I want to say their original designs were basically just really elaborate speaker boxes. Okay. Gotcha. Pretty cool. Um, I was wondering about this on the ceasefire text line. What happens to Trump's Secret Service detail if he's in prison? Do they go with him? I... I th- I think so. I've seen some folks talking about that. It is bizarre. We were talking on the break. The sheriff, I believe, fully intends to capture a mugshot of the president. And it's like a trophy to them, honestly. They'll celebrate, be ecstatic, giddy, euphoric. It's nuts. So couldn't he just pardon himself when he wins in jail? Well, that's the speculation, is that he'd carry with him a pocket pardon and pardon himself. I don't honestly know how all that works, and it's just bizarre to me. You're going to have the, the, the leading candidate for president of these United States tied up in four different court actions, court cases, uh, perhaps simultaneously while running a campaign during the middle of the, the primary season, which gets kicked off next February, I believe. Just really incredible. How do you think things are going to work out? Man, I, I just don't know. I don't know if I agree with Dick Morris. He's going to get convicted and go to prison. I, I just feel like there might be something kind of minor, my gut feel, that a lot of the big stuff, is just not going to survive the legal test. Gerard, you may remember at one time Mississippi had seven convicted felon sheriffs, says D.W. and Madison. I do remember something about that. He is a member of the 118th Congress, says Daryl Issa. Thanks for clearing that up for me. We're out of here today. We're back in the Element Well studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.